0: John chapter one, verse 15 through 18. I'll be reading out of the ESV. It says this. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace grace upon grace for the law was given through moses grace and truth came through jesus christ no one has ever seen god the only god who is at the father's side he has made him known this is is the word of the lord let's pray jesus we thank you for your word And we, as your people, come to you this morning as our our good shepherd. We come to you right now for rest. And we come to you for spiritual food and for drink for our souls. Jesus, we come to you for direction. And some of us may come to you in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. And so we come to you for hope. And for comfort and for protection. Jesus, we trust this morning that you and your goodness and your mercy will sustain us today as you feed us from your word. Spirit, we ask that you would wake up our souls and open the the eyes of our minds and our hearts to behold Jesus in a fresh way this morning. Would you show us Jesus? our good shepherd who laid his life down for us. And Lord, if there are those this morning who have yet to know you as their good shepherd, would you draw them? Would you pursue them through your word? Would you save them and rescue them, Lord, that they would belong to you? We look to you this morning. You are able to care for us through your word. And it is in Jesus' name, amen. In his landmark book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer asks this question. What is the best thing in life bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? And he answers, knowledge of God. What brings more joy, more delight, more contentment? It's knowledge of God of God. He goes on to say once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Once we come to know that the main thing is to know God, all of a sudden all of our real problems are seen in perspective. And if we're honest, Most days, most of us, we go to God to get some kind of like need met, right? It may be an emotional need. It may be relational help or even a practical need. God, would you change this or would you do this? And this is okay. This is good, even. God designed life such that we would need Him to get through the day. That's how God made it. He said in Jeremiah, I made my people to cling to me. That's how life works. But hear this, the greatest joy comes when we learn to go to God for God himself. When he is the chief end, the great end of our life. When we learn, when we begin to taste and experience, he is infinitely better than his best gifts. When we begin to enjoy simply his presence and the knowledge of him. The knowledge of God is why we exist. Now we ask, we got to ask, okay, so how do we come to this knowledge of God? How do we know God? I can't see God. Is it just my feelings? How do I trust it's, it's my feelings? Is God? How do I know God? How can I come to know him? And our text this morning tells us God has provided witnesses to him, to himself. He gives witnesses. He has given humanity from the beginning to now, various witnesses to tell us who he is and what he is like. But our text also tells us that these witnesses all fall short to fully disclose to us who he is. Even the witnesses, the messengers God sends are inadequate to fully show us and tell us who he is and what he is like. And so what God has done is given a better witness, an ultimate witness. He has sent you and me his son. He has sent Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, to come to humanity, to reveal, to show us who he is and what he is like. And so this morning, we're going to see three witnesses God has given, and we're going to see that that Jesus is far superior to these other witnesses. Here's our three points. First one is this. Jesus is superior to John the Baptist. The second thing we see is Jesus is superior to the law. And then the third thing we will see is Jesus is superior to Moses. So the first is this, Jesus is superior to John the Baptist. Look again at verse 15. This is what it says. John, John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist, remember John the Baptist. You have to remember that if you were an Israelite and you were living in these days, you went 400 years without a prophet from God. Like that's as long as they were in slavery to Egypt. Nothing, no fresh revelation, no fresh prophecy, just silence. And then this man shows up named John the Baptist and he is a prophet of prophets, He says things like this. A whole crowd comes and he turns and looks at them and he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He said things like, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He goes out and he's he's calling out political leaders of his day. He's calling them out for their sexual sin like he was a prophet of prophets. And so whole crowds are going out to hear of this witness to to hear what is God really like? And is God gonna come again for us? Is there hope for us? And Jesus himself says that of those who were born of a woman, which is a nice way of saying everybody, John the Baptist is the greatest. There was not a greater human being ever born than John the Baptist. He was sent from God as a witness to tell us, to prepare us for God and for what God is really like. And yet John himself says this, he who comes after me ranks before me. John's entire ministry was to get people ready to see the greatness of Jesus. He says that though Jesus was younger than him and his ministry would come after him, Jesus actually ranks before him because Jesus is far greater than him. What what he's saying is Jesus existed before me even though he was born after me. How can that be? John came to testify that there's a greater witness to God than even him. And before we move on, I just want us to see two really practical things we can learn from John the Baptist in this verse. And the first one is this this is so important for us. Humility comes as we compare ourselves with Jesus. No matter how great you are, and how gifted and unique and special God has made you, you don't even come close to Jesus. Do you struggle with pride? if any person had a reason to be proud, it was John the Baptist, right? The greatest human ever born. Yet he knew once Jesus shows up, it's a good time for him to step aside. He knew that. And one day, every one of us are gonna stand or rather bow before Jesus, all of us. And it will be clear where the attention belongs in that moment it does not belong on us and our unique giftings and our unique role in the kingdom of god attention belongs on the name above every other name jesus listen we can all compare our strengths to other people's weaknesses and feel like good about ourselves but john the baptist says no you compare yourself to jesus he comes before you and he ranks before you, he is greater than you. The second practical thing we learn from John the Baptist in this verse is this. We too exist to bear witness to Jesus. Verse 15 says, John bore witness about him and cried out. Listen, John is a model for every Christian. No matter where you work or how you spend your time, you exist to bear witness to to Jesus. And and, and we need to be clear. What is a witness to Jesus? Does it mean that I'm just really nice to people and I'm just like a happy person? No. What does John do? He cries out. What does a witness do? A witness cries out. To be a faithful witness to Jesus, you have to open your mouth and speak, even cry of who Jesus is to our kids, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family. And that crying out conveys three things. It conveys urgency. Like, hey, life is short. Life is a vapor. Eternity is a long time. We cry out, there is a savior. We should have urgency as witnesses of Jesus. In in crying out, there is certainty. We We don't share the gospel as if it's like, you know, our, our favorite, you know, slice of pie. Hey, why don't you try this? Like we don't share opinions. We are sharing actual news of something that actually happened in history. We are sharing objective truth. Jesus came and died for the sins of the world. We are certain of this truth. If you are not certain of this truth, you will not be a faithful witness to Jesus. And the third thing is clarity. When, when John cried out, he was like a, like a bugle, like a clear note. He wasn't like, hey, guys, Jesus is important, you know, and you should get to know him. No, he said, repent of your sin for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And salvation is in Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you do not repent, the wrath of God remains on you. If you say you repent, your life must show it with fruit. John was clear. He was a clear witness. He is a model for us. Do we have the urgency and the certainty and the clarity to testify about Jesus? And John was a faithful witness. He prepared people for the Son of God. He humbled himself before Jesus, who was far superior to him. Yet he's not the only witness we see in this text. The next witness we see is this. We see this. Jesus is superior to the law. Look at verse uh, 16 and 17. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You know, one of the first things we need to ask is what is the law? What's, what's uh, John, the author, telling us? What's he talking about? What is the law? Uh, first we can be sure the law is, is referring to the 10 commandments. Remember when Moses went up on a mountain and God gave him these two tablets and it had the 10 commandments on that. We are all probably more or less familiar with the 10 commandments. And then we know that Moses also wrote the first five books of the Bible. Uh, that those first five books, the Pentateuch became uh, known as the law. And then, and then know this anywhere in the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, where it, it declares a commandment to us, can also be called law. Law in the Bible is essentially do this and don't do that. If you do this, you will live. If you do not do that, or if you if you disobey, you will die. Now it's also important we know that the law is good. Okay? As Christians, we can often look down on God's law because of Jesus. But look what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. God's laws teach us how to live a good life, a righteous life, how to treat people. It keeps entire societies functioning. Jesus said you could sum up the whole law essentially in this. Love God, and love your neighbor. That is the law. And hear this. If everyone obeyed God's law, society and relationships would be perfect. If only we obeyed God's law, we wouldn't have problems in our relationships or in society. But there is a problem because who here would be willing to stand up and say, yeah, I I can do that. I've done that. Who here would say, I have perfectly loved God and I have perfectly loved people. We know that no one can say that. In Acts chapter seven, you remember Stephen was about to get stoned and he's speaking the truth to the people who are about to kill him. And this is what he said in Acts 7, 53. You who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. He said, you did not keep the law. He's referring to God's people, the Israelites, the Jews. You didn't keep the law. God's people never kept his law. Look at uh, Romans chapter three, verse 19 and 20. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin." you catch that at the end. What happens when we try to obey God's law on our own? What happens? We realize how sinful we really are. We're like my two-year-old son. When I say, son, don't throw your chicken nuggets. The second those words come out of my mouth, it's like, chicken nuggets are flying through the air. I've already learned, okay, I got to like manipulate his mind. And I don't say that. I have to say, oh, don't, isn't it fun to hold my chicken nuggets in my hand and eat them? And then he eats them. Like, I already know when I say, don't do this, son. His sinful little heart is like, I have to do it. I have to do it. We are the same way. When we hear God say, hey, don't eat from that tree. I've given you all the fruit in all the garden, just don't eat from that one. Our hearts are so prone to long to disobey because the law has never been obeyed. Rather, it brings us the knowledge of our sin. And so the law is good and it's perfect, but no one has ever obeyed the law. Therefore, it has never saved anyone. Rather, it Condemns the entire world. God gave the Ten Commandments so that now the whole world is held accountable to God. He can say, "Hey, have you loved me perfectly? Have you loved your neighbor perfectly?" And all of us, no matter how good we think we are, our mouths are stopped. We haven't obeyed the law. So, so what is humanity to do? Well, look again, verse sixteen. 16 and 17, it says this. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What are sinners like us to do? We run to Jesus who is full of grace and truth. I want to read four of maybe some of the most most glorious verses in the whole Bible to you. Romans 8, verses one through four. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jesus was the only person who perfectly obeyed the law. He was the only righteous one. And that made him holy and a worthy sacrifice. And on the cross, he was killed like all those animals were sacrificed in the Old Testament. He was a lamb. And all of the punishment we deserved, all of the curses, all of the wrath that we who disobeyed the law deserved, all the death that we deserved was poured on Jesus so that if we are found in Christ, if we trust in Christ... We are forgiven of our sin and we receive his righteousness. And now we live not according to the flesh. We don't trust in our flesh, in our good works. We trust in the spirit of God, which has united us to Jesus. Jesus is full of grace for us. Christianity is not a religion where we work hard and please God and then he forgives us. It is one in which every person is a sinner, has fallen short, and we trust in Christ who is the only one who has fulfilled the works of the law and has given us righteousness. Now, now here's, here's what happens practically. You're like, yeah, yeah, I know that. I trusted in Jesus, you know, however many years ago. But here's the thing, I've keep, I've continued to sin since then. I know he forgave my sin then, but is there enough grace for me now? Is there gonna be enough grace for me when I make a wreck of my life tomorrow or in 10 years or in 50 years? Is there enough grace for me? And look what verse 16 says, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus is not this one-time transaction, you shake hands, thank you, you forgive my debt, I get righteousness, and then I go live my life, and I hope I don't run out of righteousness. When we come to Jesus, we come to one who is full of grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. Uh, I want to share with you a story of a young man. He was born in the 1700s. He had a Christian mom um, who died when he was young. And his dad wasn't a, a, a Christian, and he was a sailor. And so he's a young guy, and he just becomes a sailor with his dad. And he's restless, and he, he goes to join the Navy. And he, he's one of those soldiers who's just always getting drunk and always fighting with people, and he's getting in trouble. So he deserts the Navy, which you could die for. And then he, he starts working on various slave trading ships. And even then, he just gets in all these fights, and the crew hates him. And so he just deserts from ship to ship to ship ship and his life is falling apart. One time he was such a a wicked dude. He was so drunk. He fell overboard and the crew was like, we should save him. Um, But rather than throwing a life raft, they harpooned him in the side and brought him back. And he had a scar for the rest of his life. And and one time he tells of this this storm and, you know, he's out to sea and the storm is so bad and everyone's just holding on to the ship, surviving. And in this moment, he remembers what his mom used to teach him about the grace of Jesus as a kid. And he's thinking about that and he's starting to remember these promises of the grace of of Jesus. And he realizes in that moment, what am I doing? I am a wretched man and, and I need grace. And so he cries out to God and he says, I believe in you, give me grace. And then the storm passes and he falls back into his ordinary life. That may, you may have a similar testimony, a moment where you knew you needed God's grace, but then you kind of just fell back into the way things were. And his life got worse and worse and he became a captain of various slave trading ships and he goes through another storm that was so horrible he's just like i can't do this anymore and he goes back home and and then and then one day realizes about 10 years later like what am i doing i need the grace of jesus And in that moment, 10 years later, he cries out to God and he gives his life and he becomes a pastor. And uh, his name was John Newton. He was the one who wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. And he testified for the rest of his life that Jesus is full of grace upon grace upon grace. His grace doesn't run out. It is full. It never runs dry. It is as deep as Jesus is eternal. And if we would simply come to him, we would receive grace upon grace. You know, you may notice in the in the footnotes in your Bible, it says it's grace. It could be translated grace instead of grace. And what that is getting at is this. Listen, there, there's this there's this misconception that. In the Old Testament, God saved people by works. And in the New Testament, God saved people by grace. And what that phrase means, grace upon grace, is that even in the Old Testament, people were saved by grace. And when Jesus came, he was like a grace upon the grace. He was even better grace. We need to remember that God of the Old Testament isn't cruel and works righteousness and then he finally sends Jesus because we know no one, no one has ever obeyed the law, which means guys like David and Abraham, we know they were saved, not because they were good guys. We know their lives, they made continual mistakes, but they were saved by grace. And the law was given as a, as a signpost that one day a perfect sacrifice would come. We need to remember that from Genesis chapter three to Revelation 22, God gives grace upon grace, upon grace. And I want you to notice this. Remember when Moses receives the law and he gets the 10 commandments, when when this is happening, God says something of himself. Look what God says of himself in Exodus 34 verse six. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. What does that sound like? Grace and truth. God has always been full of grace and truth. God never changes. He is a gracious God. And yet in Christ, we see the fullness of his grace and his truth. The law was this shadow. It, was, it wasn't clear. It was like all these sacrifices and they pointed to something. We, we knew it was pointing to God's grace, but in Christ, in Jesus, we have clarity. We, we know the way to God and the heart of God is one of grace. And so we see Jesus is superior to the law. And through his death on the cross, he gives even more grace and truth. Now, the third thing we see in this text is this. Jesus is superior to Moses. Verse 17 again, for the law was given through Moses. Now, if John the Baptist was unparalleled in the New Testament, Moses is unparalleled in the Old Testament. Of all the prophets in the Old Testament, he stands way above all of them. 40 years of walking with God and leading the people to God. He would speak personally, audibly to God, so much that his face was glowing and they had to put a veil because they couldn't even look at Moses' face because he was with God all the time. He even got to see God's back, so to speak. He got to see where God's glory manifest, presence just passed on. Moses saw the glory of God. He was a witness to God, unlike any other Old Testament witness. There was no servant of God like Moses. But Jesus is no servant of God. He is God's own son. Look at Colossians 2.9, speaking of Jesus. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. John 14.9, whoever has seen me has seen the father. In John 1 18, our last verse, no one has ever seen God, the only God who was at the father's side, but he, Jesus, has made him known. You see, the, the law came through Moses. He was like a conduit. He was a, a messenger. He was a witness. But Jesus, information about God doesn't come like through Jesus. It doesn't come like he, he teaches us about God. He is God himself. He is God. His full, the fullness of God is in Jesus. And that word known, the last word in verse 18 uh, in Greek is exogomai, uh, which means this, declared or expounded. It's where Bible scholars get the word exegesis, if you've ever heard of that. Jesus exegetes the Father. Jesus shows us, expounds, declares exactly who God is. Jesus is the living, breathing, visible explanation to us of what God is really like. This is what makes studying his life so incredible not just a good man, not just good teaching. When we spend time with Jesus in the gospels, we are seeing God in the flesh. When we see him interact with people, we are seeing exactly what God is like, exactly how God interacts with people. And notice where Jesus is in verse 18. It says this, he is at the father's side your Bible may have a footnote that says he is in the bosom of the father, in the bosom. That speaks of intimacy. It speaks near the very heart of God, the father. Jesus doesn't just explain to us with dry, dead information what God is like. He shows us God's very own heart, The whole book of John then shows us the heart of God. And if we want to see, we read this whole book. We read all the gospels to see what God is like. But if there is one moment where we see most clearly the heart of God, it's at the cross. At the cross, Jesus lays down his perfect, innocent life to take away God's good, just wrath for sin, for sinners like you and me. And on the cross, we see the love of God and the justice of God and the grace and mercy of God and the holiness of God and the compassion and creativity of God on display. The cross displays the heart of God for you and for me and for the whole world. On the cross, we see the heart of God made known. On the cross, he proclaims his love for you in your sin, in your present sin, in your past sin, in your future sin. When you look at the cross, hear God say, I love you. I have grace for you in your sin right now. That is what God has to say. That is God's heart to you. Jesus has made God known. He has brought God to us and he brings us to God. And when we come to Jesus, we are hidden in Christ. Do you know where that places us? Places us right there in the bosom of God the Father. If you have trusted in Jesus right now, mysteriously, spiritually speaking, you are in the embrace of God the Father. Of this verse, uh, theologian D.A. Carson says, all the ways Jesus the Word narrates God to us is what awaits us in this book. But for now, church, Let's worship him and enjoy that embrace of the Father. Jesus, we thank you that you are far better than any man, any woman, any prophet than the law. Jesus, you are God and you have come to make God known to us to declare the love of God for us, the grace of God for us, to bring us into the very heart of God. Jesus, I think about how, how Moses had to be hidden in this rock when you, God, passed by him. He had to be like hidden in a rock because your glory and goodness and mercy was just too much. And if he was to see you, he would die. And yet in Jesus, when we come to you, Jesus, we are hidden in you, you are our rock and we are able to be brought into the very presence of the Father, the throne of grace. We are brought into heaven, we are seated with you on your throne, your word says. And all of the richness and the blessings of Christ are on us and we are brought into the very heart of God. Jesus, there is no one like you You make known the heart of God to us. Lord, if there are people here who have yet to receive your grace, would they come and hide in Christ this morning? Lord, if there are those of us who have wandered from your grace, would we believe that you have grace upon grace upon grace for us? Jesus, now, even now, as we have some time in your presence, in the embrace of God the Father, in the bosom of the Father, would we, would we worship you? Would we be still before you and know you, know that you are God? Holy Spirit, I ask and I pray with Paul that you would Make known to us the love of God that is above knowledge. That we would know that we are loved by God.